You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thanks, everybody, for coming. My name is Scott Kalbach. I'm a professor in the political science department and uh, the director of CRECA, our Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. So today's lecture is jointly sponsored by CRECA and by the Polish Heritage Club of Madison. Uh, so thank you to the folks from the Polish Heritage Club for their support of, of this event. Okay, so I'm delighted today to welcome back to University of Wisconsin, as it was known probably when you were here, not UW-Madison at that point, but just the University of Wisconsin back in the day, um, uh, Don Pinkos, who is uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He was a faculty member there, worked there from 1969 to 2013, teaching courses on on Soviet and post-Soviet politics and foreign policy in the politics of Eastern Europe. And, and so Don has a master's degree, a PhD from UW-Madison in political science, where he worked with John Armstrong, who's sort of a legendary figure from uh, that period in the political science department. Don's many publications have focused on, on Poland and the Polish diaspora uh, in America. And his work has been recognized in, in just numerous ways, including a really uh, rare distinction for an academic. He's uh, recipient of the Officer's Cross of Service from the President of Poland. And, and so it's just a real delight to have him here today for a talk that commemorates the uh, 100th anniversary of the independence of Poland and not coincidentally the uh, end of World War I. So the Armistice Day uh, 100th anniversary is uh, coming up in just uh, a few weeks. And so we're delighted to have him here today for his talk on World War I, its impact and those who made Poland's rebirth happen. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, uh, Scott. And of course, thank you very much uh, to Krika, the Center for Russian and East European and Central Asian Studies program here. Of course, uh, thanks go to the members of the Polish Heritage Club of Madison, uh, was President uh, Patek, he's here, there he is, Alan, and all of the members of Polish Heritage Club. It's wonderful that you're here, and I hope we have some students here, and, and, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here again uh, to speak on this wonderful topic, on this a very timely topic, uh, connected with the centennial anniversaries of both Polish independence, declar- declaration of Polish independence, and, of course, uh, the end of the First World War. Uh, one last thing, I just want to mention that, that it, uh, as, uh, as Scott mentioned, uh, of course, Scott, in a sense, is the professor of comparative and sort of Russian studies. And the thing is, you know, I was fortunate enough to be the, uh, a, a doctoral student of uh, John Armstrong, who was really an extraordinary figure, uh, both in the field of uh, what was then called Soviet studies, but it was bigger than that. He had tremendous interest, he was multilingual, he was interested in so many different things, and he wrote about so many things. And uh, my wife is here, Angela, why don't you stand up here? <laughs> Angela and I, Angela's also a doctoral, uh, doctorate, has a doctorate here from the University of Wisconsin. Her professor was Dr. Michael Petrovich, who was equally mm-hmm. a renowned figure in his time. He was really one of the great scholars of Russia and of the Balkans, and both of us, benefited enormously from the education, the, the developments that we experienced with the, both of these great professors. And they really were caring professors. They really were interested in all of their graduate students, and they were constantly trying to be of assistance in a very professional manner. So we benefited, both of us, very much from these outstanding gentlemen who should never be forgotten, Armstrong and Petrovich. Now look at this. Uh, uh, this uh, little hand that I've given you. The second page uh, shows you a map of what Poland looked like at the time of its greatest extent. And I just wanted to show that to you because if you see the map over here, here in red, white, and green here, you will see that it's quite a bit different Poland from what was in the 1600s. This, this Polish state was one of the greatest states in the history of Europe in terms of size, about 400,000 square miles. Now, how do we, what do we mean by that? Well, 
First of all, today's Poland is 120,000 square miles. It's, it's, you look at the map there, you see the dots, that's the present day of Poland ma map. And so uh, today's Poland about 30% as large in territory. This Polish state was, well, how big was it? Well, it'd be like Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, and Iowa. Wow, that's pretty big. And they didn't have lots of highways either, how to get from one end to the other. So it was a very gigantic state. And this state was really remarkable. I should mention, of course, it was uh, uh, not only large, but it was a multi-ethnic state. Of course, only about 50% were Polish, and the rest were Ukrainians and Lithuanians, Belarusians, Germans, Jews, uh, many other na nationalities. And it was a multi-religious state. It was also a kind of a republic. It was a, really a parliamentary republic. And uh, it had an uh, elected king and had parliament. It had constitutional rights. It was quite a remarkable, and it's kind of amazing how little Poland has ever discussed when people talk about constitutionalism in Europe. We talk a lot about England. Of course, England was a successful constitutional system. It's, it survived. Poland did not survive, but it was, it was around for a long time. Now, this Polish state had some defects, okay? First of all, how do you defend this massive border? Very hard. And secondly, the other defect, of course, was that its political system, in a sense, got disorganized. The, 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 the parliament got too powerful, and the king was too weak. The kings were elected. They had to buy their office sometimes. It was, you know, a lot of campaign finance reform was needed in Poland. And uh, eventually, the Polish kings were very, very weak kings. And so Poland was eventually destroyed as a state. Okay? So in the, in the 1700s, we call that the partitions. Basically, it was kind of massive land grabs and aggressions by, by Poland's neighbors to the east, the south, and the west. So the second uh, picture there I want to just show you is, of course, a picture of what Europe looked like on the eve of World War I. And of course, you won't see any Polish state there. You see Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia, but no Poland. The next page, if you look at this, here are some, some nice, nice uh, biographies, capsule biographies, of the people that I want to talk about primarily today, Pilsudski, Joseph Pilsudski, uh, Roman Dmowski, and Ignacy Paderewski. And of course, there's also a picture of General Joseph Haller, who was the commander of the Polish army during World War I. Uh, remarkable story in itself. Uh, and of course, the next page, I just wanted to show this to you. Of course, it's in black and white. It doesn't cross the colors too much. But on the left side, you see a, a recruiting pro poster for the Polish army that was created in the United States during the First World War. Extraordinary, extraordinary story there about the creation of the Polish army that fought eventually in France and in Poland on behalf of Polish independence. On the right side, you see uh, a black and white copy of a tremendous painting by Arthur Schick. Arthur Schick was a, well, he, he was a soldier <laughs> under Pilsudski, and he became a great artist, Arthur Schick. And some of the things he did uh, had to do with uh, painting great hero heroic scenes in modern Polish history. And so this picture, of course, shows Paderewski and President Wilson together. And of course, it shows Wilson writing the 13th point, which proclaimed Polish independence <laughs> as a goal of the United States during First World War. You can actually read it if you have magnifying glass. You can read the actual statement there. And of course, it shows Pilsudski, it shows uh, Paderewski, and of course, it's a really a symbolic painting, isn't it? Because you even have uh, Pulaski and Kosciuszko in the back there, you know, little statuettes of them. Uh, he did this painting as part of a series of 20 paintings, which has a wonderful name to it. It's called The Historic Scenes of the Glorious History of Polish-American Brotherhood goes back all the way, even the time of Columbus. So it's really a tremendous series of paintings done by Arthur Schick, a, a great artist. And then finally, I just wanted to show you something which is important, I think, in that it's, here is a picture of the Polish leaders in America, the Polish-American community leaders who worked so hard for Polish independence. They often don't get much attention, and they deserve to get attention because they really did support the cause of Polish independence. And out in the middle, you see there's a priest there, actually that's a bishop, Bishop Paul Rohde. Uh, Paul Rohde was the first Pole to become a bishop in the Roman Catholic Church. He was 
first in Chicago, and then he became the Bishop of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And after him, there was a whole series of Poles who became Bishop of the Catholic Church in Green Bay. Now, right to his, to his right is John Smolsky. John Smolsky came from Chicago. He was a very prominent leader, and he became the head of the Polish National Department, or Polish National Committee, during World War I, supporting the cause of Polish independence. Smolsky was a extraordinary figure. He was, he was elected treasurer of the city of Chicago. He became the head of the Northwestern Bank in Chicago and was a devoted patriot and a great close uh, associate of Paderewski. So it's just supposed to show, and of course these other leaders, really the national leaders of the Polish community uh, during the First World War period. Okay, let me just start now. On Sunday, November the 11th, only about two weeks from now, uh, we marked the two, we marked two centennial anniversaries, two national days of remembrance. What is more, they are intimately connected with each other. On November 11th, 1918, the First World War ended with an armistice or ceasefire on the Western Front between the armies of Germany, France, Britain, and the United States. That ceasefire became permanent. In the years after, people around the world began to honor that day in a special way. In America, it was called Armistice Day. Today, it is called Veterans Day in honor of the soldiers and sailors who ser served our country in all its wars. On that same day, November 11, 1918, Joseph Pilsudski proclaimed Polish independence in the German-controlled city of Warsaw after 123 years in which the Polish people had endured foreign rule under Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. Today, November 11th, is a national holiday in Poland. It is really Poland's 4th of July. World War I, which initially was called the Great War, went on for more than four years, from August 1914 until November 1918. Today, this war is not that much remembered, even though it was extraordinarily tragic and enormous in its size. It's overshadowed, of course, by our memory of something happened even more recently, World War II. But in fact, World War I deserves to be remembered and learned from because it was first and foremost a war that could have been avoided, unlike World War II. But it happened because the states of the time and their leaders followed policies that led to a conflict that led to the deaths of perhaps about 18 million people and incredible devastation with repercussions that we are still living today Aside from all the human destruction, World War I saw the collapse of four empires, the Russian Empire, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman Turkish empires. The results there were cataclysmic. The collapse of the Romanov Empire in Russia in 1917 led to the Bolshevik communist seizure of power, the creation of a radical revolutionary regime whose leaders were bent on implementing extreme policies that resulted in the deaths of millions of people in that vast and tragic country. The collapse of the German Empire ultimately brought forth Adolf Hitler, World War II, and the deaths of 65 million people. Can you believe these numbers? The end of the Ottoman Empire set up conditions of conflict and instability in the Middle East that continued to the, this very day. And even after World War II was over, was won, the world still faced an ever-dangerous Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, something that continued into the 1980s, but whose aftershocks are again still with us. Vladimir Putin's Russia, China, Korea, and as I've already mentioned, the Middle East. In World War I, even the winners, Britain, France, and the United States, came out of the conflict, its people bitter and disillusioned. For what had over a million French young men fought for and died? Why did a million subjects of the British Empire and 200,000 Americans, why did they fought for? In these victorious countries, defeatism and isolationism became the norm, along with the refusal later on to confront Hitler and Nazi Germany until there was no choice but to fight. At the same time, in Eastern Europe, the Great War gave the submerged peoples of the region the chance to achieve their own independence after generations of foreign domination. This was not inevitable, but was a product of the fortunes of war 
and the resourcefulness of Eastern European patriots, foremost among them the Poles. Let's look now at the situation facing the people of the Polish lands. Poland had been the largest of the East Central European states in territory and population, and was also the last of these states to lose its independence in 1795. As a result, the memory of a once great, resourceful, and independent Poland remained vivid even while the country was divided up, partitioned at the hands of Russia, Germany, and Austria, especially among the educated part of the population. And at various intervals throughout the 19th century, the Poles did rise up unsuccessfully to win back their independence. In the time of Napoleon, in 1830 and 1863, and other times, but the Poles faced seemingly impossible odds in their desire for independence. And here, let's just boil down the things a little bit and look at three key obstacles that they faced. The first, of course, simply put, although the three empires that controlled the Polish territories were hardly ever in agreement with one another on many issues, <laughs> they did agree on one thing, that Poland would never be restored. For the Poles, this was a killer in itself. Even the oppressed Irish people were better off in one sense because they only faced one oppressor, Britain. The Poles faced three. How do you deal with three empires that are sitting on you and are refusing to consider their independence? Worse than that, the Polish lands in the 19th century fared poorly under foreign rule with very little economic investment to bring the country into modern times. Not surprisingly, over four million people simply gave up and left their homeland for good before World War I, out of the belief that things would never get any better. A second major obstacle was the fact that the Poles had no friends in foreign governments. The British, the French, or the American governments. There, the policymakers simply would not come out and make Polish independence of any significance in how they dealt with the rest of the world, despite the Poles' own efforts to lobby them. There was yet a third obstacle facing the Poles. This involved the sharp differences among the major advocates of independence, who were Joseph Pilsudski and Roman Domowski. Now, Joseph, let's talk a little bit about these two fellows, get an idea about what they thought of and what, what they were all about and why they disagreed with each other. Pilsudski was born in 1867, just four years after the crushing of the 1863 uprising. He came from an impoverished noble family in the city of Vilno, which today is Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, but then was a Polish city. His mother, had tremendous influence on him, and she filled his little head with the dream of a restored Poland. She was very patriotic, and Tosudski absorbed those ideas for the rest of his life. Early on, he became active in a political organization that was interested in independence. He was arrested and sent to Siberia for five years. When he came out, he had even a greater hostility against Russia, which was oppressing the Poles in the eastern part of the Polish lands. If you look at this map, here is Vilno, okay? It's called Vilna by the Russians. And this area was all Polish territory, was under Russia. This territory was taken by the Austrians, its major cities, Kraków, and what they called Lemberg. Later, the Poles called it Lvov. Today, it's a Ukrainian city called Lviv, okay? <laughs> but this story, and then, of course, we have the Germans who had really the smallest part of the Polish lands, but they had important cities like Poznan, okay, which they called Posen, mm -hmm. okay, and they also had uh, Silesia here, and they had territories here in the along the Baltic Sea, mm -hmm. uh, along with the, around the city of Danzig. Okay, so the Russians had the greatest part of the Polish lands, and Tuszynski became very, very much an opponent of Russia because they were so oppressive uh, to the Polish people. When, Paul, when Pilsudski returned from his exile and imprisonment, he again became active politically, and he joined a new political party that was just forming called the Socialist Party in Poland. Now, one thing about Pilsudski, he was 
100% dedicated towards political action. I don't think he ever had a job. I don't think he ever had a regular means of uh, income. He spent almost all his time, I don't think he had any interest in anything except the idea of Polish independence. He didn't have many friends. He, did, he spent a lot of time by himself. And uh, he was really quite focused on that. Maybe he spent some time robbing banks, I guess, maybe a little bit. But basically, he was a propagandist and a political organizer of the socialist movement. Already by the early 1890s, he was only maybe about his middle 20s, he already became a prominent figure in this new political party. Now, Pilsudski had some very distinctive ideas. And let's just identify these or three of them. First of all, Pilsudski came to conclude that for socialism to be achieved in Poland, all the Polish people had to be independent. So he put independence before uh, economic transformation. This put him against other socialists like Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg was an internationalist. She believed workers of the world unite. Okay? But Pilsudski believed first and foremost Polish independence, and then social reform, economic transformation. So this was a very distinctive view. The second view that Pilsudski had was this, because he came out of that, that tradition that his mother was telling him about, that the Poles, in order to win their independence, had to be willing to fight for it. He believed that you would never get anywhere by begging for your independence or by, or by negotiation with the imperial rulers. They would never take you seriously. Now, he put that idea into practice. Already in the early 1900s, he was able to persuade the Austrians, because he was spending most of his time in the Austrian zone of the partition Poland, because it was the most tolerant area of the, Russian, uh, of the Polish partitioned regions. You know, Austria was pretty tolerant. Long as he didn't bother the empire, you could be active. So they let him, let him make proposals. They went along. Well, his first idea was, why don't we form sharpshooter societies? Sharpshooters. What was sharpshooters? Well, let's go out in the woods in the weekends and take shots and learn how to be firing rifles, rifleman societies. Well, they said, fine, that's all right. Because if you needed soldiers, they should be able to fight a, use a gun, right? So Pilsudski was able to get Austrian support for sharpshooter society. Later on, uh, he was even able to get the Austrian authorities there to let him form a legion a Polish legion, as long as it was loyal to Austria. At this time, Pilsudski began to wear a uniform all the time. He'd never been a soldier, but he began to wear a uniform all the time. He began to study military tactics and strategy. He was a self-taught military officer. And because of the way he thought and behaved, because he dedicated everything, he kind of had a charisma about him, and around him, Many, many officers and young men began to gravitate towards Pilsudski. He had a kind of a, a, a mystique about him. And so this was, a, this was his second great idea, the idea that Poland should really be willing to fight for their independence. The third base, basic idea of Pilsudski was what? The great enemy of the Poles was what? Russia. Russia was the great enemy of the Polish aspirations for freedom. And he never changed that view. It didn't make a difference if it was the Tsar or the Soviets. It was, Russia was the enemy. Now, let's turn to his major rival, Roman Domovsky. Now, Roman Domovsky was born in Warsaw in 1864, about three years earlier than Pilsudski. And he came from a family also with probably some noble background. And he went to University of Warsaw as a student. University of Warsaw was a Russian university at the time. He was actually a student of science. I think he got very much affected by one aspect of science, which was popular at that time, kind of like political Darwinism. That politics is the struggle, survival of the fittest. That is a kind of a Darwinian idea. And he was influenced by that throughout the rest of his life. Already as a young man, Domovsky began to involve himself in politics in Warsaw. He, he joined a kind of an underground group called the, the, uh, the National League. Now, of course, it's not the Brewers National League. It was called <laughs> Liga Narodowa. It's kind of a, the remnants of the patriots who had fought in 1863. Now, Domovsky, because he was such an energetic person, and he was a kind of a theoretician and great speaker and organizer, he became the leader very quickly of this National League, and he changed the name into something else. 
called National Democratic Movement. In Polish, we call it Narodowa Demokracja. The people who were members of that, they went by their initials, ND. They began to be called the Index, the Index. <laughs> the movement was called Indexia. And they were very much committed to the ideas of Domowski, who remained the leader throughout the rest of his life. Now, what were Domowski's ideas? Of course, he was also for Polish independence. So Pilsudski and Domowski, they agreed on that. First of all, Domowski believed that the Poles could never get their independence by fighting for it. What had happened in the 19th century? Thousands of Poles had been killed in those insurrections. Thousands had been sent off to Siberia where they never came back. Thousands had been forced into the West to emigrate and never came back. And thousands of Poles in Poland were often ruined by the Russian authorities. They were deprived of some of their property. So he said, what is this effort to win independence by revolution? What is that going to accomplish? It's just going to be political suicide for us. We lose the best of our people. So he was against that idea. Instead, he believed that the only thing the Poles should be doing is to try to win support among themselves for a united Polish people. That was his idea. Now, a second basic idea of Domowski was that instead of Russia being the enemy, he saw Germany as the enemy. And he had a good point here, because although the Germans and the Russians were both very oppressive to the Poles, much more than the Austrians, the Germans were even much more systematic and ruthless in how they were dealing with the Polish lands under their control. They didn't have a lot of Polish territory. You can see on the map of what Poland looked like after the First World War, that area that's lined with pink is not that large. But the Poles in those territories, they were really submerged in a, in a, under a regime which was aiming at really destroying Polish national culture. Under von, von Bismarck, Iron Chancellor of Germany, what was the policy? First of all, German was to be the language of instruction on everything in the schools, German language. Secondly, the Catholic Church was suppressed. And of course, thirdly, Germany began to uh, try to promote German migration into the Polish territories. And they supported the idea of German purchasing of land at very, very favorable interest rates, making it also very difficult for Poles to buy land. What was the idea? It was to destroy the Polish nation. And Domowski felt this was the great threat to the Polish people that was pr promoted by the Germans. Though the Russians were very oppressive, but they were not as systematic uh, in what they were doing as were the Germans. And this German effort must be resisted. That was the th basic thinking. Now, as far as Russia, Domowski believed that Russia was bad too. But what, was, what, what brought the Russians and the Poles together? He felt, well, number one, they were all Slavic people. They were all Slavs. Now, they weren't exactly the same. Russians are Orthodox, Poles are Catholics. Their languages are not that close in many ways. But they were both Slavic peoples. And they had, secondly, a common enemy, Germany. So his idea was to work with Russia in order to promote the idea that the Poles could be trusted under the Russians and they would be given eventually more and more uh, autonomy under the Russian Empire. Finally, and I think this is perhaps the most interesting aspect of Tomowski's thinking, his idea was the Poles themselves needed to be united. They could not just simply be thinking along the lines of economics, in business, landowners versus peasants, uh, things like that. The Poles should be united across the board. Education of the peasants was essential to bring them into the Polish nation. The workers needed to get rid of this socialist idea and become committed to, to nationalist idea. He believed that if the Poles, across the board, landowners, industrialists, workers, government officials, uh, intellectuals, peasants, all across the board, townspeople, if they all thought first and foremost as Poles, Poland would become like a piece of iron block. How do you deal with a piece of iron block? You can't do anything with it. You can't bend it. You can't melt it. You can't make anything of it. You just got to leave it there. So his argument was that the Poles would unite. They would become finally a, a people that the other empires would say, well, 
Let them be independent. We just can't deal with these people. Now, how realistic was that? I don't think it was very realistic, by the way. But nevertheless, that was his thinking. Uh, to create a kind of an integral nationalism, integrating everybody, to create eventually a Poland for the Poles. The Poland for the Poles. Now, besides these differences between Pilsudski and Domowski, of course, they hated each other as well. <laughs> so that was another reason that they couldn't get along. On June 28, 1914, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne was assassinated in Sarajevo, Bosnia a newly acquired and bitterly contested territory that the Austrians had seized. A great war began in August of 1914 with Russia, France, and then Britain against Germany and Austria-Hungary. Now, Pilsudski's legion was mobilized under Austrian command, although from the start he operated largely on his own. In his view, Russia would be beaten in this war by the Germans. And eventually, however, Britain and France would beat the Germans and the Austrians, Pilsudski really foresaw that the opportunity for Polish independence existed if that happened, that Germany would knock off Russia and then France and Britain would knock off Germany and therefore the, the great empires would be defeated, the opportunity for Poland uh, would be finally coming about. What happened in the war actually proved him to be right. The Germans smashed the Russians badly from the start in central Poland which became the battlefield among the warring powers. But the Russians recovered and defeated the Austrians decisively in southern Poland. The war dragged down with huge casualties on all sides, with Poles in each of the partition zones forced to fight and be killed in the armies of their rulers. The Polish lands themselves were devastated by armies trampling through the towns and villages, by famine, disease, epidemics. By the war's end, Poland's population was two million lower than it was before the war. In time, the Germans came to see that Pilsudski was a person who could lead a Polish army serving under German authority, what they called the Polnische Wehrmacht, a Polish <laughs> army under the Germans. But Pilsudski refused to take the oath of allegiance to the German emperor, and he was imprisoned and sent off to Germany for the rest of the war. But his courageous stand made him a national hero in Poland. Roman Domowski got to France in, in 1915, about a year after the war started. By then, he too was convinced that Russia could not win. He then organized a Polish independence committee in Paris, and he began lobbying the French and British governments to back their cause once the war was won. His efforts got him nowhere until spring of 1917, when the, Polish, when the Russian Tsar was overthrown. France then approved the creation of a Polish army associated with Domowski and his committee. This army would eventually number over 100,000 men under the leadership of General Joseph Haller. And it would go on to play a notable role in the war in France and later in Poland. Now let's just now turn to the third figure of great significance uh, over here and, of course, the very different and distinctive figure of Ignacy or Ignatius Paderewski. Paderewski was a little older than the other two fellows, born in 1860. He was born in Ukraine, in what is in it to a, uh, on a Polish estate that was where his father was the manager. As a young child, Paderewski showed tremendous talent on the piano. You know, little three, four, five-year-old kids start playing the piano, uh, little pieces, and people began to notice this fellow had some talent, this little kid had some talent, kind of a prodigy, you know. Well, you know, in those days, let's face it, piano was in everybody's house, was middle class and upper middle class. What do you do in the evenings in the 19th century if you're in the middle class or the upper class? Play cards, you know what I think? Play cards, play chess, read books, play the piano, okay? So piano was very popular, and Paderewski excelled. He was eventually able to go to Warsaw where he studied at the conservatory with very little success. Very little success. Uh, because he hadn't gotten a lot of training in finger exercises. So he was criticized by his instructors. One of them even said he should give up the piano and take up the saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> well, sax luckily he ignored that. And he did get good training eventually from some very fine teachers in Germany and Poland. In 1888, at the age of 28, Paderewski 
kind of an old age for a debut as a pianist. He made his debut in Paris, and the rest is history. His debut as a pianist in Paris was wildly received. He was considered one of the great prodigies, one of the great talents, and he went off to England and did the same. And then he came to America, and he began making tours of the United States from around the early 19, 1890s all the way the rest of his life. And he made these tours, and everywhere was received as he was an extraordinary superstar, a real superstar. Now, he was an amazing kind of person. He was tall, around six foot, six foot tall. He had this blondish, golden, reddish hair was all over him. And he played with such emotion and ferocity that he just wowed everybody. People would rush up to the, to the stage and cheer him. They would try to tear out his clothes. He was really an extraordinary figure. And he performed enormous numbers of concerts. He would come in the United States, he'd do 120 concerts in, 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 in one tour, from New York all the way to Los Angeles and back. So to, uh, he became really an extraordinary figure as a pianist. But Paderewski was more than a great pianist, more than a multimillionaire. He was also a dedicated patriot who gave much of his fortune to patriotic causes. Now, when the war started, he was in Europe. But in 1915, he became connected with Domofsky and his committee and traveled to the United States to promote the Polish cause. This he did in a number of very interesting ways. When he would do concerts, after coming back, he would do shorter concert, concerts, shorter. And then he would give a talk. He'd give a talk. And his talk was in English. He spoke beautiful English. He spoke with great fervor and emotion. And he wowed people with his pleas for Poland. His pleas were also always for the Polish people and for Polish independence. Now, who was he reaching out to? He was reaching to the powerful people in our country, the people who went to these concerts, so people of industry and government and, of course, culture. So he had tremendous influence with the influentials. Paderewski made contact with President Woodrow Wilson and met him on a number of occasions. The two men hit it off famously because they shared an idealistic idea, a vision, about the purpose of politics. Besides, Paderewski, he belonged to no political party. He, was, he said he was not a politician, so he was always speaking from the heart for the cause of Polish independence. And this really affected Wilson, who was himself very much an idealistic and moralistic figure. Wilson responded to these appeals. Already in 1915, he, he proposed, he made a public appeal to the American people to, to, to give money for humanitarian purposes to the suffering Polish people. In 1917, even before the United States entered the war, he gave a speech to Congress where he supported Polish independence. And in 1918, in January, eight months after we were in the war, Wilson, of course, made Polish independence one of the reasons we were fighting the war. The war to end all wars. What an idealistic thing that was, right? So point 13 of his 14 reasons why American boys were fighting in France was to fight for Polish freedom. What an idea. He, had, he did more than any previous president in history to support the Polish independence cause. Now, besides Paderewski's work with, with Wilson, he was also busy mobilizing the Polish community in the United States on behalf of the Polish cause. In 1917, just before the war started, Paderewski went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he spoke to the Polish Falcons Alliance at a special congress they were having, and he called upon the, Cong the Polish Falcons to form a Kosciuszko army in America to fight for Poland. What? A Kosciuszko army to fight for Poland. And believe it or not, it happened. The United States government, once we entered the war, did permit the creation of such a Polish army. The only time in our history we ever did something like that, where a, a group of foreign-born people were allowed to form an army separate from the United States to fight on the side of the United States. Incredible story. There were a lot of limitations to the United States. Well, reasonably so. I mean, can you imagine a country of immigrants having all kinds of armies being formed on our territory? 
I mean, that's kind of insane when you think about it. So the point is, and we also, they wanted to draft a lot of Polish guys to, to join the American army. So that they did allow this Polish army, this Kosciuszko army, to be created. And as it turned out, over 20,000 young Poles from America eventually were in France, and they eventually got to Poland itself, where they fought for the Polish independence cause. In August of 1918, just before the war ended, Paderewski and his friend Smolski, John Smolski, they organized a massive congress of the Polish people in, in Detroit. There were there about 1,000 elected delegates from the entire Polish community. And there they heard Paderewski's appeals. And they, unite, they unanimously approved everything he asked for, including a commitment to raise $200 million for Poland once the war was over. Now, throughout the, the war itself, the fortunes of the Polish independence cause were also improving. Because they needed Polish soldiers to help fill up the ranks of the German army, uh, in November of 1916, Germany and Austria-Hungary got together and they proposed a post-war Polish state, but a Polish state that would be made up of the territories from Russia not from Austria or Germany, and it would be tied to, Aust to under Austria and Germany. This proposal was rejected by lots of people, but guess what? A month after that, the Tsar of Russia went further, and he proposed the creation of an independent Polish state, including all of the Polish territories, but linked to Russia. Things were changing. Things were changing. In France and Britain, under the influence of people like Domowski, those governments were developing a positive view towards Polish independence. But it was President Wilson, influenced by Paderewski, who made the real difference. Because he was the leader of a country whose army was fighting for idealistic reasons. We had no territorial ambitions, for example. Wilson, of course, had the stature, almost of an angel of peace when he was arguing for the causes that the United States was fighting for. And because he supported Polish independence, it made a tremendous difference. Once the war was over, Paderewski returned to Poland. Pilsudski had declared it independent. We say this about Pilsudski. He declared Polish independence on November the 11th, 1918. How did he get back to Warsaw? Well, the German government let him go back from prison. They put him on a train and they shipped him back to Warsaw in a sealed train, I think. He got to Warsaw the day before the end of the First World War, and the next day he proclaimed Polish independence. Now his proclamation was well received in central Poland, where he was quickly recognized as the leader of this new little tiny state. Within a few weeks, more and more of the leaders of Poland began to gravitate towards independence the German army began to leave Poland, and they left their weapons with Pilsudski, which helped the Poles have army, armed to military forces uh, that were armed. Now, Paderewski himself returned to Poland in the end of November, and then he, he, he first got to Poznan, where he rallied the Poles in western Prussia for independence. Now, the problem for Poland after the Declaration of Independence on November 11, 1918, however, was unresolved. Just proclaiming independence does, is not enough. You had to go further than that. And the, of course, the problem was, how do you make it work? First of all, Poland found itself in a series of conflicts in order to determine its new borders. So these conflicts were, of course, fought uh, against the Lithuanians here to get this area. They fought against Ukrainians here, okay? Czechs to the south. Oh, there were these wars. And then, of course, Poland was involved in a lot of debate with the Germans, because Germany did not want to give up a lot of these areas where there was a substantial German minority. And the great powers, France and Britain, <coughs> took the side of Germany, and they forced Poland to allow referendums in Silesia and uh, in this area, northern, uh, north, south of East Prussia here. And in those, uh, those uh, referendums, uh, the Germans pretty much rigged everything, you see. They were able to ship lots of Germans into the area to vote. And they were able to take about half of Silesia and much of this area that was occupied by lots of Poles. 
Also, the great powers forced Poland to uh, acknowledge that, they, that Danzig, which they considered important to them, they had to have an outlet to the Baltic Sea for trade purposes, would not become part of Poland. It was made into an independent city mm -hmm. uh, with the Poles having access to it, just like the Germans. Now, Danzig was a German city in terms of its population, but the Poles were very devastated by that because this meant they had only this very narrow outlet to the Baltic Sea. Of course, we know what happened. They then built their own port uh, further north. They built the city of Gdynia, which today is larger than Gdańsk, larger than Danzig, which is also a Polish city now. These conflicts that had to be fought, these negotiations which were forced on the Poles at Paris uh, were very, very difficult. It took Poland three years to secure these new borders. Now, the most significant war that they fought was, of course, the war against Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. Soviet Russia and Poland got into a war which is today unknown among Americans, certainly among scholars. They don't ever talk about the Polish-Soviet War, which lasted two years. Mm -hmm. And how did this war eventually led to, to uh, some extraordinary results? Of course, Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, wanted to establish, of course, complete control of the territories of the old Russian Empire, including Poland. And he talked about a free Poland, but he really wanted a Soviet Poland. Pilsudski wanted to establish a new Polish state going all the way to the Dnieper River, a giant Poland. <laughs> now, he was very idealistic and naive here. He didn't realize that the Ukrainians were developing nationalist feelings, and Lithuanians, Belarusians even. And so he quickly changed his view, and he said, not so much a big Poland, but a Poland allied to these states to keep Russia in check. In April, he made a deal with the Ukrainian provisional government leader, Petlura, to have an alliance to protect Ukraine against the Bolsheviks. Lenin was extraordinarily angry about that, and he launched an attack on Ukraine and took it over. And then he drove the entire Polish army back from Kiev. They were all the way to Kiev. They drove them all the way back to Warsaw, where Tosudski led a tremendous victory which defeated Russia. One of the most decisive battles of all time. And the Red Army was defeated. Not only in Warsaw, they were defeated in the south, around Lvov. Giant cavalry battle was fought there. And they also were fought on the, they lost the battle on the Nyaman River. Over 100,000 Red Army soldiers killed. So the Red Army was wiped out and the war came to an end, and Poland was saved. But it took wars like that to save this new state. Let me just finish here now by saying a few things. What happened with Polish independence after 1919, 1920, 1921, 1922, finally borders secured? Well, Paderewski became the first prime minister of Poland in 1919, and spent a great deal of his energy as a non-political leader trying to win Polish support at the, at the Paris Peace Conference. At the end of 1919, was, he, he resigned. Why? Because the country's economic crisis was so great after the war that he had no answers for that. He resigned, he left the country, never returned. Never returned. Although he remained a Polish patriot the rest of his life and supported the cause of Polish independence all the rest of his life. In the case of Domowski, he never achieved his goal of leading Poland. His party, the National Democrats, although they were the single strongest party, alienated the other parties and could never come to power. And he was never actually a leader in the government after 1918. It was Pilsudski who was the success story here. Pilsudski, of course, the commander of the Polish forces uh, in trying to define their borders the victor at the Battle of Warsaw. He was the commander-in-chief. He was the leader of the country. After he resigned with the creation of the Second Polish Republic, which went against his goals of having a strong president, he thought the Poland needed a strong leader, not a weak leader, not a symbolic president. He resigned, but in 1926 he came back and took over in a coup, and he ran the country to the rest of his life from, until 1935. In 1939, of course, Poland, the Second Republic, was attacked uh, by Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, and the Second Republic was destroyed. 
The country was divided between them and subjected to six years of ruthless violence. The leaders of Poland did establish a government in exile in London that played a substantial military role in the war as an ally of the United States and Britain and Russia. But after the war, the Soviet Red Army occupied the devastated Polish lands and set up a puppet state they called the Polish People's Republic. So the Second Republic came to an end. This failed state was at last replaced by, of course, solidarity in an extraordinary democratic, nonviolent manner in 1989. Solidarity created a new Poland called the Third Republic, the Third Republic. One of the Third Republic's first actions was to make November 11, 1918, Poland's national holiday, Poland's 4th of July. <coughs> Let me just close by making two quick points. First of all, we've talked a lot about these three outstanding people, uh, Pilsudski, Dmowski, Paderewski. But of course, the most important thing to realize is that we can't talk about the hundreds of thousands of people who were on the side of Polish independence. In a way, these three were like the tip of a giant iceberg. Because this was not just the work of three people, the work of thousands upon thousands of people in Poland and in the immigration. The second point I'd like to make, and the last point, of course, is what is the legacy of 1918? What is the legacy of the Second Republic? Now, this legacy is not so much that this was a successful state. Why? Because the Poland that was created in 1922, this Second Republic, had enormous problems. It had tremendous economic devastation. It had been divided for so long. It had different kinds of political traditions, which manifested themselves in lots of conflict. It had terrible problems with land reform. It was very poor. It had many ethnic groups that were divisive in the country. And so democracy really didn't work so well and failed after 1926. So we can't really say too much about the Second Republic in terms of its success domestically. They had some successes, like building Gdynia, no question about it. The, uh, on foreign policy, they were an impossible position, right? Because on the West, you had a powerful German state, and on the East, you had a powerful Soviet state. And both of those states regarded Poland as a problem, a problem to be solved by perhaps destroying Poland, you see? So you can't really say they had a very good situation facing them both domestically or in foreign policy. What is, therefore, the legacy of the Second Republic? It is simply this, that once Polish independence was achieved, Poland's fate in the world has never been questioned. A Polish state has never been denied. The right of Poland to be Poland has never been uh, rejected. So today, we have the Third Republic, and its people are really in communion with the people of the Second Republic in their idea that there should be a strong, democratic Polish state. Let me stop there, okay?